Good afternoon. I hope you're keeping really well. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, I'd much rather be with you in person, but sadly, due to the coronavirus, we've had to cancel our meetings for the time being. I do hope, though, and, and pray that if you're listening to this right now, that you'll stay safe and well during this uncertain time. Now, the question for us today is this. Is the Bible just a bunch of fairy stories? The Bible is the most popular book in the world. Every year, over a hundred million Bibles are sold or given away. And many, many people have testified to its importance over the years. Mahatma Gandhi, for example, when he was speaking to a group of Christian missionaries, said this. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. And there's no doubt that the Bible has been hugely influential upon our society and culture in a way that no other piece of literature has. The language that we use on a daily basis is shaped by the Bible. Phrases like broken-hearted, the apple of my eye, the sign of the times, scapegoat and so on, all of these terms come from the Bible. It's influenced our art. Almost a third of the paintings in the National Gallery in London are paintings of scenes of the Bible. Even some of the titles of our best-known films have been influenced by the Bible, like Armageddon and Apocalypse Now. So there's no doubt that the Bible is very influential. But is it actually true? Perhaps you have friends who look at the Bible and question your belief in it. They may be willing to admit that it's had a deep and lasting impact upon our culture. But they'll say, well look, it was written a long time ago in a faraway land. It's not actually true. Perhaps they read of the miracles in the Bible. The claim of a virgin who gives birth or a talking snake. And they say, well this stuff doesn't happen in my day-to-day life, so why should I actually believe it? You might even be that person yourself. You may think, I can't believe these Christians actually read this stuff and live their lives by it. So the question we're looking at today, it's an important one because if we can't trust the integrity of the Bible, then we can't have authentic Christianity. After all, the Bible makes truth claims for itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if it is truly inspired by God, then we can expect it to be true, because God is the author of truth. So, is it true? Or is it a bunch of fairy tales? I want us to consider three things today. Firstly, is the Bible itself reliable? Do we have any reasons to trust what it says? Secondly, we'll think about a couple of common objections to the truth claims of the Bible. What about miracles? What about the apparent contradictions in the Bible? 
Thirdly, we'll see that it's not just an accurate and reliable book, but it has the power to save lives and the power to change lives. Firstly then, is the Bible actually reliable? I want to suggest that there are five reasons why we can say that it is. And the first reason is the accuracy of the texts themselves. Before we talk about anything else, we need to ask this question. Do we actually have an accurate record of the Bible? Consider what the famous atheist Richard Dawkins says. He describes the Bible as a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists. But is that a fair assessment of what the Bible actually is? Is the Bible a random anthology cobbled together by hundreds of different editors? Well, when scholars are trying to discover and put together ancient texts, they use whatever manuscript copies they have in order to try and reconstruct it into its original form. And historians will ask three questions to determine the reliability of this reconstruction. Firstly, how many copies exist? Second, how long is the time gap between when the original was written and when the earliest surviving copy was made? And the third one, how significant are the differences between the copies? When you have lots and lots of copies, a really short time gap, and when the differences are insignificant, then scholars can have much greater confidence in the accuracy of the text when they're doing a reconstruction of it. Now, for the sake of time, we'll look first at the New Testament and then briefly at the Old Testament. So let's compare the wealth of evidence we have for the New Testament compared to other ancient writings. Historians rely upon works like Gallic War by Caesar, uh, and of that there are nine copies, and the earliest manuscript was written 950 years after the events. Or consider Tacitus, he's considered to be one of the greatest historians of the Roman Empire. Well, the earliest copy we have of his work dates to the 12th century, a thousand years after Tacitus was alive. And even then, we, we, we have only 20 copies. Now compare that to the New Testament. There are over 5,000 copies in the original Greek, the earliest of which date to just 30 years after the events. So the scholar Daniel Wallace says, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to manuscripts of the New Testament. We have lots of copies a good number of which were written just a short time after the events they describe. And although there are some minor differences, the vast majority of these are spelling mistakes and differences in grammar. None of these change the actual meaning of the biblical text. Bruce Metzger, who's one of the world's leading scholars on the New Testament, has said this. Not one doctrine of the church is in jeopardy because of a variant reading in the New Testament. Okay, so we've lots of copies of the New Testament, lots of manuscripts. The second reason then that we can trust the accuracy and reliability of the Bible is its historical evidence. It claims to be accurate. The Gospels, for example, were written as biographies. As the Bible scholar Richard Boycombe has said, 
about the original readers of the Gospels. He said they would expect this to be a record of what happened. They would be looking for historical information. They would not have expected it to be a mere legend or an entertaining bit of fiction. So at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke writes this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He goes on to say in verse 3, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that Luke's gospel is true, but we know that accuracy and reliability of information was his primary aim. And his gospel is packed with references to historical characters, rulers, high priests, and so on. And so in Luke chapter 3, we find references to not one or two, but eight historical figures. Now, what's pretty amazing is that all of these details have been confirmed through recent archaeological discoveries. And in fact, Luke's credibility as an historian has only been strengthened over the years, even when that's been tested. William Ramsey was one of the leading archaeologists of the 20th century. He was initially very sceptical about the historical reliability of the New Testament. He studied the regions where Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts also written by Luke, were set. And he investigated the historical claims made by those two books. And when he looked at the evidence for himself, he actually ended up himself becoming a Christian. He said that the book of Acts was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statements. The third reason we can trust the Bible, in this case the Gospels, is that it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. What do we mean by that? Well, the four Gospel accounts would have made the early church pretty uncomfortable. And that's a key reason that we can know that they're reliable. This is what historians have called the criteria of embarrassment. When people lie, they don't tend to include details that make them look bad. For example, when we're putting out stories about ourselves, let's say on social media, we're often tempted to put a positive spin on it, aren't we? Perhaps you've put a picture up on Instagram or or maybe Facebook and you put on the perfect filter so that you can be presented in the best possible light. But the disciples did the opposite. The disciples were portrayed as being pretty foolish, being really slow on the uptake. And yet some of these men would later write much of the New Testament. Just one example of this is found in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for saying that he has to die. Jesus responds by saying in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Later on in chapter 28, even after Jesus has appeared to the disciples, they worshipped him, but it says some doubted. Some doubted. And this was even after his resurrection. And yet this detail is included. It's hard to know why these embarrassing details would be there unless they were actually true. 
Now, this doesn't prove that the Bible is the word of God, but it's hard to believe that the gospel authors would have invented these facts, especially when we consider how they would have been viewed in the context of their own time. The fourth reason we can trust the Bible as being reliable is just the sheer number of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament. Many of these predictions took place hundreds and hundreds of years before they came true. So Jesus fulfilled literally dozens of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, centuries before he was even born. And many of these contain very specific details. So for example, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, that he would be a descendant of David, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be crucified with criminals, that soldiers would gamble for his clothes, that they would pierce his sides, and even that he would be buried with the rich. All of this came true about Jesus, and it was recorded in the Gospels. And that gives us confidence in the truthfulness and reliability of the Old Testament. And the last reason we can know that the Bible is reliable, specifically the Old Testament, is to look at the teachings of Jesus. He believed that the Old Testament was reliable and true. Matthew chapter 5 sums up the approach Jesus took in confirming the reliability of the Old Testament. Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The theologian Norman Geisler said of the Old Testament that Jesus affirmed its divine authority, its ultimate supremacy and its historical reliability. Now this by itself would probably not be convincing. You might say, well look, I don't believe in Jesus anyway. But if the New Testament is reliable in its claims, then Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's God in the flesh. And that is an incredible claim, but it's one that's ultimately backed up by his resurrection from the dead. Now, we don't have time to discuss that today, but if you are interested, there are some great resources on that. One of the best is by a man called William Lane Craig, and it's called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? It's well worth looking into. And so if Jesus really is God, then we can trust him on his comments about the Old Testament. The Bible is reliable. Now at this point you may still have a couple of questions or objections to the truth claims of the Bible. And because we're short on time, we'll just deal with two of the biggest ones, miracles and then apparent contradictions. Firstly, miracles. Perhaps you're listening to this and you've already read a bit of the Bible and it seems to be completely honest. It seems a bit bizarre. You've got talking snakes at the very beginning. That seems strange. You've got a virgin giving birth. That goes against everything we seemingly know about biology and the the reproductive system. You've got Jesus turning water into wine and then walking on water. And you may think, isn't it really obvious? These things can't be true because this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. 
The Cambridge, uh, Cambridge English Dictionary describes a miracle as an unusual and mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by a god because it does not follow the usual laws of nature. Now, of course, if you believe that there's no such thing as a supernatural being or a god, then there's no real point in discussing miracles at all. No amount of claims about miracles that contradict your view would ever be sufficient. The problem is that the atheistic worldview has been taken as a starting point. No God, therefore no possibility of miracles. But the Christian argument for the reality of miracles in the Bible doesn't just rest upon miracles alone. Christians believe that we live in a universe that shows signs of being made. We believe that the Bible contains the fulfilment of many, many prophecies, that it contains a message of morality that rings true, and so on and on. We don't have time to discuss today the evidence for the existence of God, but the point is this. The big question is not, are miracles possible? But rather, it is, is there a God who can make miracles possible? That is the bigger question. And that's where Christians can say, yes, we do have confidence that there's a creator behind the universe, an incredibly powerful and personal God. And he can intervene and suspend the laws of nature because he's the one who created those laws in the first place. And it's because he exists that miracles are possible. If you are convinced that this universe is all there is, then, to be honest, it's difficult to imagine what amount of evidence would actually persuade you to believe in miracles. So I'm not going to attempt to do that. But I am going to suggest that you consider the evidence that there is a God who's created the universe and who makes miracles possible. Because if God exists, then the idea of him intervening in his creation through miracles is actually perfectly plausible and rational. Second, you might say, well, okay, miracles are are possible, but the Bible contradicts itself. It contradicts itself. People often point to the four Gospels, for example, and they say that there are discrepancies between them. Let's look at just one example, the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Mary Magdalene and another Mary are at the tomb at dawn. In Mark's Gospel, we read that Mary Magdalene, the mother of Jesus, and Salome was there. And in John's Gospel, it says Mary Magdalene was there. But it also says that when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, it was still dark. So John says it was still dark. And Matthew says it was dawn. Plus all three seem to feature different people. So are the Gospel writers contradicting one another? Well, what John is saying isn't actually contradicting any of the other gospel accounts because he doesn't say that only Mary Magdalene was there. So there's no contradiction there. No, instead, he's just choosing which facts he wishes to record. And also, if the woman left their home when it was still dark and arrived at the tomb when the sun was coming up, then there's no contradiction here either. And there are many instances like this in the Bible. But we we need to remember that these are apparent discrepancies or contradictions. And actually, as the New Testament scholar Peter Williams says, all of these apparent discrepancies can be harmonized. 
Finally then, the Bible isn't just historically reliable, but it actually has proven to be true. It's proven to be true in the lives of millions of people who've put their trust in Jesus. And it's proven to be true in two ways. It has a life-saving message and a life-changing message. It's life-saving. Somebody has once uh, said that the message of the Bible can be summed up in just three words. God saves sinners. God is the one who has created the world perfectly. He creates the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and they enjoy a perfect relationship with him. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? That they rebel against God because they believe that their way is far better than God's way. And this rebellion against God, the Bible calls sin. And we, just like our first parents, we're all prone to this. It's built into our nature as human beings. We sin against God. And yet the amazing thing is that God reaches down into the world that's turned its back against him. And he sends Jesus, his son. And because Jesus takes our penalty for our rebellion in his death on the cross, we can have peace and a new friendship with God. This is the message that has been so transformative for millions of people around the world. God saves sinners. People who've discovered the grace, the undeserved kindness of God. That God, instead of wiping us all out and starting again from scratch, no, he decides to sacrifice his only son. Instead of giving us the punishment we deserve, Jesus takes our penalty. The entire story of the Bible ultimately is about this. And the Bible also gives us a life-changing message. The Bible for thousands of years has shaped and transformed people's everyday lives, their experiences, their relationships. It gives us freedom from our old way of life. It gives us hope in the midst of despair, calm in the midst of chaos, joy in the midst of trials and suffering. It instructs us in the ways of wisdom. It guides us into all truth. It challenges and convicts us of sin. And it encourages us that we're loved by God and it moulds us into being more like Jesus. I want to finish by leaving you with these words from Psalm 19. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is God's word. It's life-changing and it's life-saving. Perhaps you're listening to this podcast now because a friend has shared it with you. And you're still not totally convinced that the Bible is true or that Jesus is who he said he was. Can I encourage you, especially in a time now where you may be under lockdown, you may have more time than you've ever had before. Can I encourage you, just pick up one of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and read it and ask God to himself to reveal himself to you through his word. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is reliable and trustworthy and true. That we can have confidence in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus because of the record we have in scripture. That we can know you because you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And that your word is not only true, but it's powerful. It has the power to save us and change our lives forever. Lord, we pray that you would draw close to us at a time when we're facing deep uncertainty. We pray for the coronavirus spreading across our world and across our nation. And we want to remember all of those who have lost loved ones. We pray for those who are seriously ill at this time. We ask that you would comfort them and grant them the peace that passes all understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.